afternoon, everybody. Hi, everybody. Here we are back on this Tuesday. It was 82 degrees yesterday. What's the temperature outside right now, Patty? Like, what, 35? I don't know. Welcome to Texas. It's crazy, Gosh. isn't it? Yeah, last night, 82 <laughs> degrees after we finished class at four something we we waited about an hour or so we sat outside till our neighbor's lawn man came and completely blew us <laughs> we couldn't even hear made our, it no fun it made it no fun no fun but it was 80 degrees that's so crazy and it's going to be freezing rain tomorrow morning and and woke up in the middle of the night to hail hitting oh on we have gosh. we have a steel roof on our house so when the hail hits it it's all plunk 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 yes. plunk 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 all over the place fortunately couldn't tell any damage outside at all nope not yeah. big enough, no. but we got got a good, decent amount of rain. Got we about did. an inch and a half. That's good. During the night, I thought it was about six inches, but when Scott <laughs> asked me this morning, I said, "Oh, we got three inches. We, yeah. I'm sure we did. We went out and checked our gauge. No, it's an inch and a half. It just sounded so it's, fierce. But you know, I guess an I guess inch, it, it probably didn't last long enough. That's at probably the what it was. Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Yeah, because. You're really always so accurate about such things. I'm totally. It tricked you last night. <laughs> it tricked me. <laughs> okay, so we're anyway. back. We're back for John today. Glad that all of you are here. Yes, we are. Um, uh, <laughs> I saw Andy Ibsen said he tried reading my book, What Jesus Expects of Us, but the font is too small. Yeah, Andy, I hear you. I opened up a box of the copies and I went, hey, what the heck? <laughs> don't these people know for I one i'm kind of very old. similar yeah. only i didn't use the word heck i yeah. opened it up and went <laughs> what so i don't know i don't know i of course i'm you know so it was my book i ended up you know downloading it on kindle so i could there i can i like kindle because i can make it all the size that i need yes. which is increasingly getting larger and yes. larger but yeah andy you are 100 percent right my friend 100 percent right and if it goes to a second printing or something like that, we will definitely uh, be bigger. Be bigger, but they got copies. Yes, they need to move. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, glad to be with you guys. It was kind of a whole crazy thing for all the books this year because they all got rolled out in the middle of COVID. Yeah, and there's a lot of good books that came from staff and right. um, now from an, another. We got our first outside author who right. was. There's a whole slew of things lined up coming, coming up. from from. Uh, during COVID to do a authors. launch was just. It was kind of hard. It was hard. It was hard. But I will caution them next time about the font size, Andy, because you are not alone. So, shall I open us up with prayer, dear? Do you want to? Oh, let's just keep bantering. Okay. okay. What do you want no. to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> no, you better, you better open us in prayer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, we are getting closer to going back on Tuesdays again now. I know I stopped saying that because of Omicron, and we were just kind of hiding out. But I was down, in, we were down in Piro Hall yesterday. Yes. New carpet, new paint. Yes. They redid the movable walls. It was looking good. Technically, I think they're just about ready, you know, so... Lauren's going to give it the test drive for us. She yeah. does her class at so, 9.30 on Sundays in there, so... Might be sooner than we think. Works, but... I'm excited about that. It'll be good to see everybody. Mm -hmm. it will. So, anyway, okay, I'm going to open us up with prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. It's, it's increasingly cold outside, and we're told that the weather's going to get bad again, and... and uh, uh, War clouds are gathering, you know, in Europe, and and uh, but we can come here together on this day at this time to to study your word and to resume our journey through the Gospel of John, 
and to hear Jesus today. We're in the section where Jesus has has a lot to tell his disciples and may and may some of that at least sink in with us and help to shape our own knowing of Jesus and our own commitment to being genuine disciples of his. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. I'm going to go around the other side. We okay. have our little dog, Rudy, yes, in here with us today. I think we had him last... We did. Yeah, we, we had show and tell with Rudy last Tuesday. We did, and he's laying here. How did we agree to keep Rudy for this long? I volunteered us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yep, you did. But it's okay. He's a, he's, he, he takes less maintenance than about anybody or any dog you could imagine, really. He's pretty much a... He's not a high-maintenance person. Oh, my gosh, the sun is out a bit. Okay, well, very good. So here's where we are, friends. We are in the 15th chapter of John, and we are at verse 18. And the first section in the 15th chapter of John is the section about the vine. I am the true vine. And we spent some time in that last week, seeing this powerful, wonderful metaphor about, you know, God. it's God's vineyard, and in God's vineyard, there is one vine and one vine only, and that vine is Jesus. And we are all branches in that vine and intertwined and abiding and remaining in Jesus and Jesus abiding and remaining in us. And there's, it, it's this wonderful picture of the body of Christ. No hierarchy, no division, all unity, all... Um, uh, living this life of eternity in Christ together with one another in all things, through all things, um, um, with Jesus. So it's just wonderful. But now Jesus is going to shift gears because he's going to start talking to his disciples about the world hating them. And, I, now, and so when he says the world in this upcoming paragraph, the world, you, you'll see when we get to the end of the paragraph why, why I say this, but the world is immediately defined here as the Jewish world and the Jewish leaders. But of course, John is writing 60 years later, near the end of the first century. And so, of course, by then, um, Jesus is talking about the world has taken on a much larger, much larger connotation. But in this paragraph, when you get to the end of the paragraph, he says, well, he talks about the, like, the world's law, their law. And that law, of course, is the law of Moses, which tells you that the world Jesus is immediately speaking to is um, the Jewish leaders who will pose the biggest threat to the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, if you read the book of Acts, it, there, there's Jesus returns to the Father, then you have Pentecost, Peter gets up and speaks, and then pretty much the arrests commence, right? And um, the threat of martyrdom, and when you get to chapter 7, you have the first martyr of the Christian faith, that is Stephen, who is stoned to death um, at, at the instigation of the Jewish leadership. So, uh, all right, one more introductory thing. Sometimes I find people can be put off in John's gospel by John's gospel because he speaks 
And Jesus speaks in John's Gospel in very stark terms. There is light and there is darkness. There is love and there is hate. They are... It, yesterday we were reading in Isaiah chapter 6 and part of the condemnation of the arrogant in the world goes something like this. They call the good evil and they call evil good. They call light darkness and they call darkness light and they call um, uh, uh, sweet bitter and bitter sweet. Bring it to 2022. Putin calls his troops marching into Ukraine peacekeepers, peacekeepers, right? It's the exact opposite of what they are. The exact opposite of what they are. So, so John's gospel is very much that way, right? Very much light and dark, love and hate. So look at verse 18 in chapter 15. You know, I couldn't do this if I couldn't talk with my hands, Patty. I don't know what it must look like on the screen, but I find myself all the time getting exercised. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so here's what Jesus says. If the world hates you, the disciples, keep in mind that it hated me first. Of course. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Of course. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Right there's you can you 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 can choose Jesus or you can choose the world. There's no middle ground. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Dot dot dot. Because you're with me, Jesus says. So remember what I told you: a servant is not greater than his master. By which he means, don't think that you're going to escape what is about to befall me. I'm the master, you are the servants. Well, you know, you're not greater than I am. You're not, you're not going to have some means of escaping what is about to befall me. And he goes on, if they persecuted me, they will, all, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, which you and I wouldn't say it that way. We would say it this way. They will treat you this way because of who I am. But in the ancient world, there's a lot of emphasis on name. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. That is a recurrent theme in John's Gospel. If you've been with us for any time at all, you know there's this constant theme when Jesus confronts the Jewish leader, leadership and says, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. You don't know the one you claim to know. You don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you did know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would know me because I and the Father are one. That's, that's a Scott Engel mashup of various verses. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that would be all right if they weren't aware that it, they were sinful before, but someone points it out to them. But the law of Moses laid that out, right? So the law of Moses had 
Under the law of Moses, you have lots of ways to understand what sinful is because, I mean, that's what all the priestly mechanisms are meant to deal with. So it's really, this is tricky, I guess. It's really something in about John's gospel. In John's gospel, sin is something more specific than it is in the rest of the New Testament. In John's gospel, sin is is the denial of Jesus. Sin is refusing to believe in Jesus. John's gospel is so Jesus-centered that when he uses the word sin, he means, he means refusal to believe in Jesus. And that is the foremost problem of the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other Jewish leaders. It's not how we tend to use the word. I get that. Um, let's let's turn to an earlier place in John. Go to John um, chapter three. Go 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 to John three sixteen. The most famous verse in the New Testament. John three sixteen. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Okay, this is the verdict. Light, Jesus, has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light, instead of Jesus, because their deeds were evil. <coughs> so, in, in John's, we can go back to John 15. In, in John's gospel, um, sin is this, is this failure to believe in, in Jesus. And so, that makes sense then in verse 22 when he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Right? right. You couldn't refuse to believe in Jesus if Jesus isn't in the picture yet. But now they have no excuse for not believing for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. Okay, why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. You can't embrace the Father and not embrace Jesus. That's, 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 the, that's the crux of it with Christianity in the world writ large. That you, you, you cannot claim to know God and yet reject Jesus or treat, right? It, does, it doesn't work that way because Jesus is God. So, of course, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father as well, dot, 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 because the father and I are one. Don't you love my verbal ellipse, my dot, dot, dots? Yes. <laughs> verse 24, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. And he's drawing it back to himself. He's saying, look, I'm here. They've seen what I've done, and they don't believe. 
as it is, continuing in verse 24, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. The Jewish leaders would agree that they hate Jesus, but the idea that they hate the father? No, that's crazy talk to them. And then Jesus goes on, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law, the law of Moses. So we know who we're talking about in this paragraph. For It's not about the world at large. It is about the, the Jewish leadership, the opponents of Jesus. They hated me without reason. And actually, that Jesus says that. Um, he quotes it from Scripture. It's really not so much a quote. It's a fulfillment. I mean, it's really maybe there are three candidates from different places in the Psalms that Jesus might have in mind. But there we go. They hated me without reason. So these, these are words of warning for his disciples about what's coming. And indeed it does. Indeed it does. Sometimes at the hands of the Jewish leadership, remember before the Apostle Paul meets Jesus, he is known at, by the name Saul. And he is very aggressive. He's like a beast going around persecuting persecuting. Thank you, Patty. Persecuting, mm -hmm. persecuting Christians, gobbling them up, devouring them. He's on his way to Damascus to do that when he meets when Jesus meets him. So. So yes, by, by the time John writes this gospel, there's been a lot of persecution at different places, different spots around the Roman Empire. But for, for in the beginning, it's all persecution that the Christians will suffer, that the Jesus believers, the Jesus people will suffer at the hands of their fellow Jews. Remember it because for more than a decade, they're all Jews. Everybody, Jesus, Jesus followers, those who reject Jesus for, 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 for 10 years, probably a little more than 10 years, they're all Jews. Okay, so now we're going to, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit because you see Jesus is not leaving them adrift in this world that is going to hate them as it hated Jesus. And watch what he does. Watch, watch what he says here. He says, when the advocate comes, and the, who's the advocate? The advocate is the Holy Spirit. Just to, re, just to review for a moment, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Who. The personal presence of God. That, and the Holy Spirit is going to arrive with great power on Pentecost. That's who the advocate is, the paraclete in the Greek, the, the, the counselor, the comforter, the spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ. All the same person. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, the spirit of truth, that's just so wonderful because it, it, it isn't as if the 
the Holy Spirit is giving everybody this incredible, you know, in the moment experience, overpowering experience. No, the, the, the Spirit is, is leading people to the truth and strengthening in them the truth. The truth of what? The truth of what God has done in this world and is doing in this world. The Spirit of truth, He will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. That is the essence of the work that Jesus has got to give these disciples. And you and me. At the end of Matthew, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey. And then in the first chapter of Acts, be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Um, that is what our principal work is, is to testify to Jesus. And we testify, yes, in what we say. We testify just as much in how we live. Right? Absolutely. So we, we testify in word and deed. So then he goes on, and there's really no reason for there to be a chapter break here. They put it in the wrong place. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. See, it's going to be tempting to fall away, right? Sure it is. Times are going to get hard. Where is everybody on Friday? <laughs> just, just, just like later, just hours away. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That's how bad it's going to get. They're going to be coming for you just as they're coming for me. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. There we go again. The essence of the problem is what? They don't know Jesus. And because they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. Because Jesus is God, John chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 4. I have told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you, but now I'm, I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus can't be their protector. He can't be the lightning rod that draws the ire of, of the leadership. That's the way I see it, right? He's, when, when Jesus is with his disciples doing this public ministry, I mean, nobody gets mad at the disciples about much. Everything's focused on Jesus. But when Jesus is not there, where is the anger going to turn? going to turn to the disciples. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where are you going. Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. 
Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That was, for a long time, that was a puzzling verse to me. You know, what could that be? And then it struck me one day. Well, you know, shoot, even Jesus could only be in one place at one time because he was bound by a body like you and I are. But the spirit is not bound by a body. The spirit can be everywhere all at the same time. The spirit can dwell in a billion people all at the same same time. The spirit isn't bound by a body like Jesus is. So as the disciples move outward to different parts of the world and different parts of the Mediterranean and head east and west and south and north to spread the good news, the Spirit can be with all of them. You see? That's what I think it's about anyway. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. What is the world, the Jewish leadership, most immediately in focus? I know there's the larger, we can, it, it easily expands to the larger world that you and I live in and that John lived in 60 years later. But immediately the focus here is Jesus' world, this world of the Jews and the Jewish leadership, the people of God. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, because they haven't embraced Jesus. Righteousness, because they have rejected what is true. And judgment, because they don't understand that God's judgment is falling on them. Verse 9, about sin, because people don't believe in me. There it is, plain and simple. The focus is on Jesus about righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The arrival of Jesus and the ushering in of the kingdom of God meant the end of the age of Satan for all intents and purposes. Yes, it's not finished yet. Yes, it's not consummated, but the victory's been won. The climax of the story is the cross. The victory's been won. And, and, and the New Testament has a real cosmic view of this. Um, in Revelation, the, the pagan oppressors Rome, they are merely the puppets of the larger cosmic powers, as we call it in the Methodist Church, the spiritual forces of wickedness, of Satan, or those who choose against God. Um, and, and they are defeated by the cross. The prince of this world stands condemned. Do you have a question there from Jim Adams? Why do we use the Holy Spirit rather than the advocate or companion? We could. We could, we could, we could, we could. There's probably, I bet you, Jim, I bet you there is liturgy in the church, in the Book of Common Prayer behind me um, from the Anglican Church. 
that uses those words in some prayers to refer to the Holy Spirit. Um, because you could, we, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ, the Advocate, the Counselor, the Comforter. Now, Advocate, Counselor, Comforter are three ways to translate the same Greek word. There's one Greek word, the paraclete, um, brought into English as sort of P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-E. -E. So what does paraclete mean? Advocate, Comforter, Counselor. So we, we can we can use all of those, and it's probably it would be nice if we used them a bit more, I think, because it would help us to grasp more of the work that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. When we're grieving or mourning, or we're struggling. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us through that. And so, we could. We could, Jim. We could. But most people, most of the time, call the, Holy, call the Spirit the Holy Spirit as a way, I think, probably of being clear because we live in a world in which there are other, we have other advocates and other comforters and other counselors in life, people with those titles even, right? So the Holy Spirit, even more than just the quote, capital S Spirit, um, is, is more specific. Does that make sense, Betty? Yes, yes. So, look, that's, let's look what Jesus says, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Hmm. But when he, notice the personal pronoun, not, when, not, not it, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, let me just say one other thing. The fact that it is a masculine pronoun in English translation does not mean the Holy Spirit has gender. Okay? The only person, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has gender is Jesus, because he had to be, boy, he was born a human, and humans are creatures, and creatures have gender. You're male or you're female. Okay? But that is not true of of the Father. It is not true of God. It is not true of the Holy Spirit. So don't let... What what matters about the pronouns is not so much the gender. It's not really the gender at all. It is the personal nature of the pronoun. I, I, I would never refer to the chair I'm sitting in, in as he or she. The chair I'm sitting in is simply an it, an impersonal pronoun. But the New Testament uses personal pronouns, and by tradition, and it's not, don't, I'm not even sure it's all language in the Greek, um, with masculine pronouns. You know, that will get people's ire up, but it shouldn't, because the truth is, across Scripture, it is the create, gender is a, func is a characteristic of the created order. It is not a characteristic of God. 
So, about verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He is like Jesus in that way, right? The Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. Jesus says what I say, the Father says. I only say what the Father says. There, there is only one God. There is one God. Verse 14, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Pentecost, Pentecost glorifies Christ. Because Pentecost glorifies God. Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on Pentecost, it shows, it, it, it reinforces what we know from the resurrection, that indeed God, God, is, God has put things right. God has not abandoned this world, has not abandoned humanity to our own devices, our own consequences. No, God, despite all of our failings, rescues us. Verse 14, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Verse 15, All that belongs to the Father is mine. It's one of those, it's like dozens of these verses like this that just put Jesus and the Father much closer together than two hands, which I'm holding up here with intertwined fingers. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. I'll use another ellipse because dot, 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 um, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. And so Jim Adams says, so I see a couple of things. Jesus refers to God as the Father, a male. Father is a role. Okay, it, it, it gets, it, you know, these come out of patriarchal cultures Father, father is, is a role. It is a relationship between the first person of the Trinity and the second, the Father and Son, and they. Though I understand that those are both masculine ideas, but. If you look across the expanse of Scripture, God is not like the created order. If God, think about it this way, all right. If God is male, well, then who's the female? See, the Mormons don't have this problem because the Mormons believe that God does have gender and that God does have a body and that God, the God of Abraham who comes to Abraham is male and has a body and has a wife. Right? So if God if God is male, who is the female? Well, there isn't one. 
God does not have gender, despite the fact that we are stuck using words and ideas and pronouns that come out of our created order to speak of God. That's just how it is. We're, we're stuck with the, with, with the way our language is put together and, and that's what we have to use to speak of God. So there are Christians who will go further than I will about about that but I I just think that that you you just so quickly end up at something Mormon-esque in terms of who God is and you're immediately left with the question well if God is male where's female because go back to the beginning of Genesis 1 1 or Genesis chapter 1 he he male and female he created them the two genders are complementary and are part of the created order. So, plus a question there from well, a comment from Mo, um, Mona saying that uh, her study Bible says the spirit draws no attention to himself, but promotes the glory of Christ. Because, it, yes, because everything you know in John's Gospel, it's about. And it should be for us. It is very Christ-centered. Of course it is. And the glorification of Christ um, is the glorification of God. When you look at what Jesus says, he says, you know, what that, that what I'm going to do is for the glory of the Father, for the glory of God. Um, and the Spirit... does what the Spirit does for the glory of Christ. Christ is God. There is one God. So what the Spirit does glorifies God as well. So Mona's looking at verse 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. There's, a, there's an old theological argument about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who proceeds from whom? And this, this verse sort of feeds into that. And I find that whole... I've never found somebody who could really explain it to me clearly and so I think it's I don't know I think it's all a little bit muddled because um, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you but what Jesus has is from the Father because he and the Father are one right so I I, I do get what the, what the study Bible is saying and I'm, I'm certainly not going to argue with it um, John is very focused upon Christ. We just, we, just, we just have to remember that Christ is the second person of the triune God. And that when you glorify Christ, you glorify God. Okay? So...
for there we go yep <laughs> there's a lot is it you know in the, the in this part of john there's a lot of sentences and verses and thoughts that are pretty abstract you think that's true betty They seem a little bit abstract to me. Okay. Maybe I'm, you know. So anyway, verse 15. Let's let's take this a little further. All that belongs to the Father is mine. Well, why? Because he and the Father are one. There you go. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So that leads down to a whole theological path about the Father, um, the Son proceeding from the Father and the Spirit proceeding from whom? Is it the Father or is it the Son? And ah, I, I've had people tell me I really need to, to, to concentrate on that, that it matters, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe someday I'll grow up and understand <laughs> it or Warren will find a way to explain it to me or something. Bill Brewer says, this study Bible says he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. <coughs> okay. All gets to the same thing. In the end, when you get to the end of verse 15, where are you? That the work of the Holy Spirit is going to glorify Christ. Hence, it will glorify God. Because what is actually happening here what is happening here? What is happening here is the rescue of humanity. That's what's happening. God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only son. That's what we're in the midst of. That's what's happening. And it all works to the glory of God because it enables the world to see that God does love each of us and does love humanity and does love the world. And when the Spirit arrives on Pentecost, it will be further confirmation that God is determined to reconcile the world to himself, just as the resurrection of Jesus is the demonstration of God's determination to reconcile the world to himself. Okay. Verse 16, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And they said, What? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, You can, you can, you can picture the, 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 the table talk. What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father... And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Well, yeah, they don't. What is he speaking of? Crucifixion and resurrection. In a little while you will see me no more, because he will be dead. And then after a little while you will see me, because he will be resurrected. And of course they're confused. They don't understand it. The constant imprint you have to have in your brain here is knowing that the idea of a crucified Messiah is... It's simply not in the Jewish framework. 
There was no expectation that had anybody has found anywhere in the writings from this period where there was an expectation of a crucified Messiah. So consequently, every time Jesus ends up talking about like this, they're confused. They're confused. And without the resurrection, if, if they had gone out and around the world and said, hey, that crucified Jesus, you know, the guy who's buried in the tomb over there and is turning to dust, he was really the Messiah, they would not have gotten anywhere. It is the resurrection that is the proof that crucified Messiah was not an oxymoron. It was the way God would rescue the world. Well, verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to him, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I tell you, amen, amen. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Okay? You will weep and mourn. Why? Because Jesus will be crucified and dead on the cross. While the world rejoices, the world being the Jewish leadership, they will rejoice because they think they will have won. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Why? Because Jesus will be resurrected. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Okay? A really good thing about the way God designed us is we can't really remember pain. You can't recreate pain. You can remember that you felt terrible. You, you can remember promising yourself you would never want to go through it again, but you can't really like trigger pain in your body by just remembering it, which is a really good thing. It is. Or we really. would be in trouble. So with you, Jesus says, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Just thought of Arthur's sermon on Sunday and his story about his dad. But always telling people I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing in the face of a lot of trouble. I, they will never wait, take away your joy. Why will, they, why will no one be able to take away the disciples' joy, even given what they will have to endure? It is because they know once Jesus is resurrected, they know that God's victory over sin and death has been won and that death will not hold them as death did not hold Jesus. And regardless of what the authorities or the powers of this world might do to the disciples, those authorities and powers don't win. They may think they won for a while. They may be able to put people to death even. But God works on a larger, a larger playing field. 
That's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is saying to people, yeah, yeah, Rome's got lots of power. Yep, they can do things to you right now today, but they don't win. They don't win. Even if it looks like it. You know, even if it looks like they're six touchdowns ahead at the end, you know, with a minute to go in the game, they don't win. Verse 22, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. You know, we read those words, and I struggle with them, as I think many people struggle with them. And we kind of want, is Jesus saying to us, like, like right now, here it is, February 22nd, 2022, that anything I ask for in the name of Jesus, I'll be given? Well, obviously, that isn't so, right? I don't think, I, I mean, it's not really my experience. Is it true that though I'm, I might be growing in my discipleship or my Christ-likeness, that my will is not fully aligned with God's will? Well, I, there is truth to that for sure. No doubt in my mind. But I also think there's a piece of this that is wanting to speak to us about this, about this larger understanding of who we are and what our life is. And when we come to faith in Jesus, that we are, we are stepping then into, into eternity. That it's so easy for us to become convinced that all that there is, is... Well, Tuesday of this week, Wednesday of this week, Thursday of this week, all the stuff that's going on, all the stuff I might see on TV, that, but that's not all there is. So, verse 23, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. To me, it's a little bit reminiscent of when Jeremiah said, God says through Jeremiah, well, something like, in that day, people won't have to come to Bible studies anymore. The law won't have to be written on stone because it'll be written on people's hearts, God says. They will simply know me. It's just drawing us to a different, hmm, a different way of, of understanding who we are and what our existence is. And I think to the extent that we can embrace that, we will be much more satisfied in life, we'll be much happier, we will be, we will find joy much more present in our lives. But of course, all the time, the world is trying to drag us back and trying to tell us, oh, no, 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 no. All there is is that day-to-day -day stuff that, consumes our newspapers, televisions, 
work lives and the rest of it. So, and so verse 25, I guess not too surprisingly, Jesus says, though I have been speaking figuratively, <laughs> that's that abstract idea, right? He's been speaking figuratively. A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, see, he's pulling us forward in that day. You will ask my name. You will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed, have trusted that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Well, and there you have it. He's, he came from the Father. He entered this world, born to, born to the Virgin Mary. And now he's leaving this world for a time and going back to the Father. And so really, like so often happens in these things, I think the, I think the time frames throw us off a bit. Because just a moment ago, Jesus was speaking of his crucifixion and resurrection. I think everybody agrees. I, I, I looked at a number of commentaries. Everybody agrees that when he says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, you will see me that he is speaking of crucifixion and resurrection. But at the same time, the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus draws our eyes and heart to the consummation of that kingdom, to Jesus' return to the new heavens and the new earth. And so when Jesus says, I came from the Father and entered the world, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father, he's speaking of his ascension then. He's speaking of his return to the Father that lies past the resurrection. So, the disciples said then, well, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Okay, and Jesus said, do you now believe? A time is coming, and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So look at verses 29 and 30. That is, what do we make of that? Hmm, that way we make, what do I make of that? I won't speak for all of us. What I make of that is that the disciples are saying, okay, now we got it, now we got it, now we got it, all right. Good, let's go. When they really don't. And Jesus knows they don't. He knows they don't. He, know, he knows they're going to be nowhere to be found on, on Friday at the cross. There's going to be the women and there's going to be one disciple, the youngest of them, probably because he's 
he doesn't feel threatened by the Romans because of his youth. But the rest of them, the grown men, they're not going to be anywhere to be found. I think I think 29 and 30 or I hate to use this word, but maybe so much kind of bravado and hot air. And so Jesus says, do you now believe? Pshaw, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You're going to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Overcome, that word, that word there is the word for victory, conquering, I have conquered the world. It's the only, it's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament, um, but it's, this is the only time the word for victory is used in, in John's Gospel. In this world, you will have trouble. Doesn't that, I mean, look at the headlines today. Mm -hmm. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome. I have conquered. Past tense. The kingdom of God has been ushered in by Jesus. As God's victory over sin and death has been won in Jesus. Just because it doesn't look like it to us all the time. It's still true. And who helps us grasp that truth? <laughs> the spirit of truth helps us hold on to that, hold on to the truth of that. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have conquered the world. I have overcome the world. So. You know, it's, um, you know, even though I know, even though I know what happens, I've, I, I, I've read Paul, I, I know what lies ahead, I know how the Christians came to, to, to understand this. I find Jesus still, his words a bit, hmm, a bit, a bit mysterious. I, I struggle to, underst to understand him, and I, I got, I think I know why that is. I think I, I think that is because I'm still awfully bound to this world, and it is just very difficult to really, to really hear Jesus well, and I appreciate what John did. That John. John could have simply dashed out a couple paragraphs to summarize all of this, right? But he didn't. As Instead, as best he could, inspired by God, he gave us paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of what Jesus shared with them that night, told them that night, even though they didn't really get it. They just didn't really get it. They didn't really understand it. And their lack of understanding and their, la their fears and their anxieties 
would all be lived out hours later, just hours later. And it's all in the context of what? Of just at the meal they just finished sharing, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Right? Jesus, and Peter says, no, no, that can't be. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll do. No, Jesus loves them, but he knows them. <laughs> so, okay. So any thoughts or questions there, Patty? Um, I, I like how Jesus explained it back in, in 14.1 of John with the, um, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. My house, Father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I think that kind of that kind of laid laid it out pretty well. But of course they were still confused. Um, Jesus cares so much about our hearts being troubled, us being anxious, us being worried, and to me he's he's just trying to find a way that we can understand that all, all that is not going to get us anywhere. It's all fruitless. We need to... You, you know, know, I often use the analogy of, of a parent and child. I've raised three kids, and there are things that you can see that they're going to go through. And you could try to tell them, but they don't really get to see it. They don't really get it. They have to experience it for themselves and so the disciples will and despite all this that Jesus has said despite their spending two and a half years with him despite their having seen him bring Lazarus back from the dead they are going to be nowhere to be found come Friday you know actions speak louder than words they're going to be nowhere to be found on Friday and Jesus loves them still and I think he of course he knows he knows that we are given to anxiety and worry and trouble and fear. And he holds out this promise of in that day, there'll be this, there's this day coming when our hearts will simply not be troubled by fears and anxieties and worries. And those are the, the portraits of those days are what are brought by the prophets. It's what's brought by in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, the, of a world put right, of our reconciliation with God. That's what those little moments are all about. So, Scott, there was a question there from Linda um, Waldo. She was wondering, the Jews were persecuted. Were Gentile believers also persecuted? Oh, yes, Linda. Oh, yes. So what the way the persecution works is for a pretty long time, the persecution is of believers... In, in certain areas at certain times. And the Romans or the governors, the local governors who's ever, you know, upset with them, they don't care whether they're Jewish or Gentile. That that differentiation doesn't mean really squat to the Romans. Um, so once the Christians begin to move a little bit into the larger world, right, then... Yeah, sure. And in fact, then in the late third century, there's a big empire-wide persecution of, of Christians. So the, in the beginning, it's the Jewish 
followers of Jesus who were persecuted by their fellow Jews. It's like the stories in the, the beginning of the book of Acts. When James and John are tried and put in prison, um, when Stephen is martyred, that's all at the hands of their fellow Jews. Um, but as as time goes on and the move the Jesus movement becomes increasingly dominated by Gentiles, just purely by numbers, right? Um, then sure, it's just it's just believers, Gentile or Jewish doesn't make any difference. It's the Christians who are persecuted. So, yep. So Lynn Lawton asks, that's what the catacombs were about because of persecution, right? Correct. The catacombs were places that were hiding out places where the Christians could go and, and try to escape, be grounded up and whatever the latest persecutions were. And so, for example, Roman Christians were persecuted by Nero in Rome in the 60s. And what one thing that happened to the Christians is that because they wouldn't worship the gods everybody else worshipped, they wouldn't worship um, uh, Caesar, they wouldn't worship Zeus, that every time something went bad, like there was an earthquake or a flood, the Christians were easy scapegoats because people would ask, well, who made the gods angry? Ah, oh, it's those Christians over there because, you know, they won't worship properly. They, they, they won't worship Caesar or they won't worship Zeus or whatever. So they just became obvious, handy scapegoats. Um, there was one Christian, maybe it was, I don't remember his name. Anyway, he said, you know, in Rome, every time the river goes up or down, <laughs> it's to the lions with the Christians. So, yeah, yeah, it's a sad story, but true. The amazing part is what? The amazing part is that Christianity endured. That it was through all of that. And then became, well, everybody's religion, which might not have been the best thing for it to become the state religion. Bobby wasn't. But it endured, and, and, and I think the emergence of Christianity and its endurance is the best evidence of its truth. The best evidence of its truth. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is the emergence of Christianity because how would these Jews who would witness their hero, their supposed Messiah, be crucified? If he wasn't resurrected, what would have happened to all of that? Well, it would have just melted away. There were other would-be messiahs before and after Jesus. And they, it, their, their movements just kind of melted away. The followers might have found somebody else to, you know, to back, another horse to back, as it were. No, no. It's tr truth is that Jesus was resurrected and that changed everything. So, I think we're going to stop there. Um, it's 1.10 and when we come together next week, we will be at John 17. John 17 is a prayer. It is a prayer that Jesus prays to God.
um, for his disciples and um, principally. So, and then after after John 17, after Jesus' long prayer, then we return to the narrative, really, and Jesus is arrested in the garden. So, all right, Patty, come back around to my side. Yes, yes. I need to do what? You need to move over. Move over. Okay, there we go. Now I can move the camera. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention if, if if you have if you've ever been to Rome, um, or hopefully maybe someday you will get to go to Rome, you can go into the catacombs and Scott. We did and I on have that one trip. A, we went on a we're, we must have been on a cruise then. Um, I don't know. I think we we might have been a cruise, but we might have stayed like four extra days or something in Rome yeah. and. Um, we had done a lot of the touristy stuff, and it, of course, it's all wonderful. But we thought, let's let's do that, and it was really it was. You really could see some of the paintings still on the walls yes. and stuff. And... Yes, I have a little thing on the wall out there, is, which is a little painting on the wall that is supposed to be Paul right. in the catacombs. And there's, I remember there was a painting of like on the wall. There was like an altar and stuff. Yes, right? yes, yeah. yes. So um, it's it is very cool. It only takes a few hours if you're ever in Rome. Just you know, ask your hotel. There's probably a service that can pick you up, like that picked us up and yeah. and took us there. So it was very cool. Um, I did have a prayer request today, and that's from our little Susan Morgan. Um, her heart surgery procedure is tomorrow, so please keep her in prayer. And I hope that the weather doesn't mess that up tomorrow morning. I hope it's everything is able to go um, get there safely and soundly, and and have your procedure, Susan. And and uh, we'll be praying that everything goes great for your doctors and your um, recovery and um, your wonderful caregiver, Rich. So we'll, we'll keep you all in prayer today. So let's close in prayer. Okay, love. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. And we thank you, God, for the great love that you have for us. The love that you sent your only son, Jesus to do what we could not do on our own. You know, it's hard, Lord, sometimes for us not to see or uh, understand what the disciples went through, and they were just hearing this all for the first time, and it's 2,000 years later, and we still, we still can spend a lot of time discussing exactly what Jesus meant. And uh, we are grateful, Lord, for Scott's um, help with us on all of that. We pray, God, today we know that there is a lot of anxiety amongst all of us, Lord, um, still for COVID, but also right now for what is going on in the Ukraine. And we just pray, God, for your peace that passes all understanding. We pray for the safety, Lord, and the lives of all those that are in, this, in the path of, the, of this storm. Um, we just lift up these prayers to you today. We pray, God, that you'd hold us close. We pray you'd keep us safe and healthy. And we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in all of this. Lord, we thank you again for the gift of your risen son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, friends. See you on Sunday. Yep.